everybody. Welcome back to the Hamptons to Hollywood podcast. I, of course, am your host and the founder of HamptonsToHollywood.com, Kyle Langan. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Evan Ross Katz. If you don't know him, he has two podcasts, one being Shut Up Evan, where he asks really interesting questions to really interesting celebrities, has a hilarious Instagram account where he covers pop culture, and is a new author, having just written a new book, Into Every Generation a Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts, which comes out on March 15th. Now, if you know me, you know I am a massive Sarah Michelle Gellar and Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, so this conversation was both personally satisfying, but also spoke to larger social issues, controversies, and movements that have enshrouded Buffy in recent years. Plus, it was really fun to interview another interviewer who is also deeply invested in Hollywood culture. And if you ever wanted to know what it's like to meet one of your idols, you'll definitely want to listen in. So here it is, my interview with author Evan Ross Katz. All right, so Evan, thank you so much for, um, for your time today and being on the Hamptons to Hollywood podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, I love the Hamptons and I love Hollywood. There, there we go. Um, I love hearing interviews with interviewers, you know, because I think it's really cool when the curtain gets pulled back and you get to hear a little more about someone who is professionally curious, like I would say, you know, that you are, because you get to talk to people and ask them questions all the time. Um, so I just wanted to start with your career and how you have amassed this incredible, you know, media presence, because it's not an easy thing to do. And, and you know, and you're great at it. So, um, so talk to me about how you, how you built this media career for yourself and how you kind of like leveraged social media to do it. Well, I love the framework of the question because I too am interested in like the art of interview, which I think really began for me with my love of Barbara Walters and coming to understand that like the skill of an interview is far more than just the question one's at one asks. It's uh, gaining the trust of the subject and that can be done you know, with really intentional purpose. It can be done through the subconscious. There are lots of ways in which it happens. As far as building, I'm going to quote you, you said empire. I wouldn't be so uh, grandiose to call it that, but I appreciate it. Um, I would say it's not that interesting so much as just I, you use the word curious. It's a word I would use as well. I've always been deeply curious and I am someone who is just always in the DMs. I'm always voice memoing with friends, with strangers, with family members, with acquaintances about everything. I find things that others might consider mundane to be really interesting and fascinating and worth dissecting. And so I think in addition to constantly kind of being in conversation with lots of people, I'm always sort of taking drinks with someone or grabbing a coffee or just trying to enrich my life with as many people and therefore perspectives as possible. Mm. And so I think it's kind of been a domino effect of like you meet one person and you become friends and then they introduce you to another person who opens up another thing or you a friend who's working on a new project that introduces you to an actor that you weren't aware of. And then you start following that actor and you're like, oh my God, we both love X thing. 
Yeah. And I think having a shared thing that you love is like very immediately bonding, especially when it's not, you know, like we're all watching Euphoria right now. So like, or a lot of us are. So like to bond over Euphoria to me is kind of like yawn inducing, but <laughs> to bond over Abbott Elementary, which is a show that I'm watching and loving when I find someone that's also watching that, I'm so excited to be able to discourse about this show that I've recently found. So I think like just shared interests that aren't in the most mainstream spaces are another way to really latch on to others and, and find a connection point. Yeah. Well, that makes me more, not even more excited, just excited to speak to you today because I, as you do, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I know anyone who knows more about Buffy than me until today because now I'm talking to you. And <laughs> you could know more than me. I don't, I think I'm the Sarah Michelle Geller historian and expert, but as far as Buffy goes, I think there are people out there that could one-up me. But I do know a fair bit about her too. So I'm excited to talk to you, but I love that we have this kind of shared experience to kind of to, to delve into. And just kind of talking about your career, like, you know, upon like a Google search will yield an amazingly exhaustive list of all these great articles that you've written. And, um, and you know, they're written in your kind of like signature irreverence, irreverent style. And you are so funny. And like, you're one of my favorite social media accounts to follow. And I just wanted to know, like, have you always been funny? Or how did you, um, how did that come about? You really like that question because I've not thought about it a ton. I guess I've always been perceived as funny. I would be careful. I won't call myself funny. I think I've always been perceived as funny from like, I remember in, in like, like childhood classrooms, like making people laugh. I don't really subscribe to like the um, class clown because I feel like I don't think I was like universally found funny. I think that there was certain people who I would make laugh and, and I loved making certain people laugh. Like I loved making teachers laugh. Yeah. I felt like I had a way of making like people besides just my fellow students laugh that would make me really happy. For instance, I'm thinking about like um, my, not podiatrist, what's the pediatric, what's a pe uh, pedi pediatrician. pediatrician? Yes. I'm thinking about my pediatrician and how much I used to like share laughs with him or lunch ladies was like a huge one for me because I loved the lunch ladies. I loved like the hall monitors. Um, yeah. There's just certain sort of like uh, types of humor that always sort of get me. And then as a result of me finding them really funny, I think that I sort of, you know, spin them into my own sense of humor. I think that I surround myself by a lot of quick witted people because I would consider myself relatively quick-witted sure um but i'm not like a comedian like i just sort of like i think that i love language and i love what one can do with language and yeah. so i feel like i like the sort of like finding the funny way to say something and then also like i love mixing thirst trappery with humor because i feel like there's that's a great like sort of intersection so i love yeah finding the humor in a shirtless photo of Channing Tatum while also recognizing that like I'm salivating. And honestly, this is gonna sound like, I don't know, a certain way maybe, but like I'm just trying to make myself laugh because I would be lying if I told you I do find myself really funny. Um, 
No, that's so I hate that phrase. No, but no, but I, though, like I do make myself laugh. Yeah, and I think that's so important because at the end of the day, you should make jokes or make observations that entertain you, and I think the rest will follow suit, or at Absolutely. least the ones that you want to follow suit will, right? Um, do you think you use it as a defense mechanism? Because I find that a lot of funny people tend to be either like self-deprecating in like a humorous way or, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I like that question too. I like a lot of your questions. Um, no, I don't find that to be the case, but not no at the same time, because I don't like to shut down the idea that maybe I am, but mm -hmm. in my personal, um, development and in a constant learning of like who I am and who I am in private and who I am in quote unquote public and amongst mm -hmm. friends. But I don't think that humor is my, uh, I don't think self-deprecation is sort of the source of my, there's any underlying thing there. Yeah. But not no, because you, you just never know. Right. right. You can always explore more and find out new things. So perhaps. And as your career has grown, right, there is, um, and understood like respond like you have more of a responsibility um because you're reaching more people um and i just wanted to like i'm curious like what or if you do feel a responsibility like as a media tycoon <laughs> to you know like what is that like for you no i don't feel any responsibility because i don't i'm not selling anything i'm not um if anything, I'm promoting articles that I've written, but I, I don't, again, it's like, I'm not a media empire. I yeah. don't have, I'm not beholden to advertisers or mm -hmm. anyone really outside of myself. And so, and I think that if I started to take that approach of like the responsibility, there's a level of like taking myself too seriously that I just don't prescribe, like, excuse me, rather I don't subscribe to that I don't really think a lot about the content that I'm making and all of this yeah. stuff. It's very, um, my, my rule of thumb is like, I want to have fun. If I'm not having fun, then I'm going to stop. I won't post for the day or for the week or what have you. But like, for the most part, I want to have fun and engage with others who want to have fun. And sometimes that means I'm going to want to talk about important issues. And, um, and if people don't like that, then that's perfectly all right. And they can, find somewhere else to go. But I guess more than anything, I don't like uh, engaging with the idea of like, quote unquote, my audience, because I feel like that by having that like lens on it, it starts to become, I'm a content maker and there's a content and there's followers and fans and all this, all this nomenclature that's deeply uninteresting to me. Yeah. I make fun stuff on the internet and I write articles and I'm grateful when people engage with it in a positive way and if you don't like it i completely understand that there's a lot on the internet that i too don't like right and speaking of your writing you know like you have such a specific voice um that i think is funny and but but like how did you because that is the thing right as a writer like that's the thing that everyone is trying to find and then once you find it you lean into it and so how did you develop that or or kind of come into your own as a writer i didn't really develop it it's really all i know you know it, it's yeah. um my writing is and has always been an extension of the way i talk i think that's mm -hmm. why i'm so voice memo oriented and why i love having both of my podcasts because it allows me the opportunity to speak in what i feel is a similar way to how i write 
all throughout like middle school and and into high school, I was very not like uh, English teachers really had had it out for me. It seemed at times. I mean, but like I, you know, because I don't speak in full sentences, I often speak in fragments, and by proxy, I write in fragments and. Language has changed a lot because of social media in terms of like, you know, fragments, for instance, are a lot more popular now because bite-sized language and bite-sized phrases are just more appealing because that's what's most commonly disseminated on the internet, which is where mm -hmm. a lot of people read. Um, but so I think that if anything, it's just like um, the accounts that I follow and seeing how they write and the words that they're using and adopting some and finessing others and saying, oh, I'm never, I'm not going to use this language. But like, for instance, one thing I saw online that I, I really love is when people say girls, gays, and theys as mm. like um, a calling card to their audience. Like, I love that. Um, mm -hmm. We all, you know, we're all borrowing language okay. here on the internet these days. No one's yeah. really the, the creator anymore. We're all just sort of like the um, incubators in which language exists. And I try and be really thoughtful. I try and make my, if I'm making an argument, I try and make it airtight. But also these days I more let other people make the argument and I'll present something. So take like the Nicole Kidman Mew Mew miniskirt that's mm. on my mind and on the minds of many. <laughs> I don't really have an opinion about it. Like I just love talking about it. Yeah. So I'm more inclined these days to like share it and, and poll the audience. So yeah. for me, it's like, I'm constantly sort of evolving how I speak to my audience. But again, it's not so much like conscious how it is just like, oh, this is a trend that I'm seeing that I like. Let me find my way into it or see if the people that follow me are vibing, for instance. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. You just mentioned before I got we got here is you are a self-proclaimed Sarah Michelle Geller historian. So just tell me, and for those who don't know, like what she means to you. Well, Sarah Michelle Gellar, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to having a celebrity that they kind of came of age with. And right. for a lot of gay men, I feel like that's often Britney Spears, or it can be Gwen Stefani, or it can be Rihanna. I mean, it's often pop stars because pop stars sort of, you know, exist in a, in a world in which they create fantasy as part of their job. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it just, it was always her. It began with Buffy, but retroactively there was, I went back and revisited all my children. And then obviously the film work that came out during Buffy and afterwards, I just kind of knew from the moment I saw her that she was my person. And I, I love, and I say this in the book, but like, I love to love her. I love the act of loving her. And I've always enjoyed from the outset, because I was into her since elementary school. I always loved how people were always so enamored by my love for her. It became like so much of like, it was my thing. Yeah. And I am the kind of person where like, once I find a thing, I lean in hard. Like <laughs> if you follow me on social media, like, and just like that, for instance, or the white Lotus, um, you know, like once when something is in my, in my head, it stays, you know, in the frontal lobe and it, it's, it, and, and then I espouse it. So right. I think she just was always on the brain in some way or another through so many machinations of my life and i just she's it she's the one and i think there was like a cardboard cutout at your at a 
an event that you had when you were a kid? There were two cardboard cutouts. There was, I have a season three, excuse me, I have a season three, which is currently sitting in the closet behind me. And then I have a season five. Both of them are present at my bar mitzvah. The season five is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in a storage unit, um, which I need to get her out of there one day. Yeah, yeah, I still have those. But yeah, I mean, like, like I said, I mean, that was what my bar mitzvah was seventh grade, I believe. And even then I, you know, if you know, you know, and I knew. And you know, and so what was this, your first, because you've interviewed her for the book. So, and probably maybe even before then. So what was your first experience, like the experience with her? Like we met in April of 2017. So it will be five years um, in two months. Uh, Do I remember the day? I want to say it was like April 7th. Um, It was right around my birthday. Cause I I remember that much. Um, It's, uh, I was at Watch What Happens Live. Okay. um, my friends who worked on the show invited me and I got to sit front row and then a commercial break happened and Andy turned to me and he asked if I'd met her. Um, and I said, no, but I said, I don't want to meet her because I didn't want to meet her just because I didn't, I was nervous I'd explode literally, you know, and I just didn't want to make a mess of the, the clubhouse. So he introduced us, we got a photo together. And then the next day, I got an email from her being like, why didn't you tell me that was you? Um, The story behind that quickly is that uh, we have a lot of entry points, her and I, to like how we have a lot of people in common. And that's why I feel like our lives have sort of, not our lives, my life has always been leading me to her. uh Um, But I had basically gone to Whole Foods and taken Whole Foods in Williamsburg right when her brand Foodsters was Mm. first popping up in store. And I took a bunch of photos of it for her. Um, cause she wanted to, you know, someone to take a photo. Sure. Um, and then I interviewed her again in 2019 for Oprah magazine. And then we've kind of, we've always kept in touch. Um, but I think it was probably through the process of this book that we became friends. And I only use that word with her permission. Cause that's a word that she would use. I would not say that if that were not the case. Amazing. Um, but yeah, and then so now, and then cut to like, we're having lunch in two weeks when I'm in LA. So it's like a funny, uh, funny how life happens, right? That's amazing. That's, it's like, that's so cool. Just like such a dream come true. It's a dream come true. But what's funny is, and I was just saying this to a friend of mine, like it's, she is still my idol and she's remarkably human to me now. It's mm-hmm. like, I... It's funny how that happens. I, it's hard to explain because I, I don't really, it's, I, it's happening all in real time, but it's like, I still revere her as the, you know, my person, as I said, you know, from my childhood. Yeah. But at the same time, when we interact, I don't feel like I'm like, you know, overthinking. It's like, and I think, I think this comes from my professional life of just interacting with celebrities a lot is that they right. sort of lose the importance that maybe you once placed on them and, and then their humanity kind of sets in and you're kind of like well I have as much to offer to you as you have to offer to me I'm funny right that like was, that's something <laughs> that was one of my questions to you is like you know you you talk to famous people a lot right so it's like you know when it's someone you admire like her or you know or anyone that you're interviewing I always have this personally like this like okay like I really want them to like like me but I also want to get like the story right and so do you think that you you can you've become good now at toggling between like journalist and like fan 
That's a good question. I feel like it really depends on the subject and what I'm trying to do. I think that there are times when there's a kind of question that has to be asked because mm-hmm. it's out there and um, and it can become tricky because with a lot of these people, I either have a friendship with them, uh, some sort of relationship from social media, or I know the publicist. Like there's always some sort of something at stake. Um, but I have relinquished the desire to be liked, um, which I which I did have for a long time. I would say now I want to be remembered. Mm. Um, I really pride myself on not asking the same questions that others might have asked. And yeah. I had a moment when I was preparing. I did an interview recently with Jonathan Groff, and I was like preparing my questions. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I just, I'm not going to ask about Hamilton or Frozen because I just was sitting there writing up a question about it. And I just was like, to be completely honest with you, I don't care for either of those projects. They're just not, not that I don't, I have nothing bad to say about them. They're not on my radar. And um, everything that needs to be asked about those projects from him, I feel confidently in, in thinking or feeling that it has been asked before and that I am not going to add to the canon of great questions that Jonathan Groff has been asked about these two massive projects. So I feel like my greater value is let's spend 15 minutes deep diving on Spring Awakening, a right. project that I don't know if you've been asked every question about and that I have a lot more of an access point to. And so memorability is really what it comes back to and just being like, I don't wanna be another interviewer asking about the thing. Right. I try to like, lately, for instance, I'm really, um, I don't like talking to actors about acting, which is something that like, I, I used to ask a lot of questions about process and I get so bored by the answer so often that I'm avoiding that at present. But so like, you know, I'm always trying to learn about like, what are the, what are the questions to ask? And then what's the way to frame them to elicit the most interesting response? So yeah. like, who can, you know, like I have an interview coming up for Shut Up Evan with Cynthia Arrivo. And it's like, I know Cynthia and I know she's a deep person. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm, I got to level up with my question asking. And so it's like, let's have some conversations about love. Let's have some conversations right. about imagination. Yeah. Things that like, I don't know if I would approach every interview with such high level thoughts. But that's, sure. the, that's the joy of interviewing someone like as Cynthia as I, I know, I mean, I know her personally, but I also know about her just from observing the public self that she is and, mm-hmm. and kind of knowing, okay, like there's, this is a, a smart human being that with a lot of feelings. So long-winded answer, uh, memorability. Okay. So you, like I said, you have this prolific writing career and, you know, arguably you could have wanted to make your, this is your first book. Yes. So you could have wanted to write your first book about probably anything, a collection of interviews, perhaps, like whatever, right? So why, why did you want to tackle the Buffy? Well, I was approached by an agent to write a book and I knew what I didn't want to write and I didn't want to write anything in the memoir space or I like to keep a big barrier between my professional life and like my public self 
Mm-hmm. Largely because my public self is, or excuse me, my private self is just not that interesting. So I was thinking about, you know, like, write what you know. That They always say, <laughs> write what you know. And mm-hmm. I know Buffy. It's just like, it's been a part of my life always. I have connections to a lot of people associated with Buffy. And it just felt like an easy thing to do. LOL that that was my thought pattern at the time because it wasn't. Right. Um, it wasn't easy. It was my thought. Um but yeah, I think it came down to just being like, I know this subject and therefore it will be easy to expound on it. And I also had a lot of like feelings about Buffy in light of, mind you, when I began writing the book, the allegations from both Kai Cole, Joss Whedon's ex-wife had come out. They came out in 2017. Um, and then also the Ray Fisher allegations regarding um, Justice mm-hmm. League, those were public at the time of writing at the beginning, rather, I should say, of writing. So I, I knew that there was a complicated legacy to be uh, discussed. Obviously, it got more complicated throughout the writing process. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew that there were, I knew that this was a subject that was like both looking back on something, but I knew that it had like, it was still breathing. How did the allegations against him change the direction of your book at all? And also, how did it affect like you? Like as a fan or as a person that was so you know this was like such a beacon of light for you as a show as a kid it changed the direction of the book greatly um for for the most the most obvious you know reason being that i had several subjects cancel um their interviews Mm. for the book as a result including allison hannigan who for those that don't know, was the, you know, the second in command, the co, not co-lead, but the second on the call sheet for all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the only other actor to appear in every single episode of the series. And so losing her was huge because I had gone to great lengths to get her in the first place. And it felt, I was so excited to be in conversation with her about it because she's done very few interviews about Buffy in the subsequent years, but especially in the last couple of years, because she is now Allison Hannigan of How I Met Your Mother fame. So right. she's kind of taken on a different project that's like most commonly associated with her. Whereas like with Sarah Michelle Gellar, Buffy is, you know, seen by many as like her definitive offering to the cultural canon. Mm-hmm. So losing actors was one thing. And then I had to re-interview several actors because there were, I think there was a willingness to say more because Mm. it was almost like um charisma had so bravely kind of opened the floodgates in a sense right um and so yes so that was definitely something that something that changed and and yeah i had to rethink a lot of how what i wanted the book to say ultimately right and then to answer the second question um my thoughts on it i I remain really heartbroken by conversations that I had, both many that appear in the book and some that were had privately in just sort of, you know, I'm not in Hollywood. I've never been on a set. I've never experienced what it is like to be a part of something like this, especially something that was at the time a cultural phenomenon and no doubt had a lot of, uh, there was a lot of pressure, right? To like make this show great and keep it great and appease the network and the sponsors and the actors and the publicists and the managers and all of the mechanisms that 
you know, go into creating something as, as, as large as this, it saddens me greatly that so many people on this set, particularly women, um, allege stories that are disturbing. And, um, and I, all I can say is that I'm hopeful that this working condition that is, that was, uh, described by so many um, in this book and, and elsewhere, I, I just am hopeful that that era of Hollywood is something we can look back on with shame, but, but mostly look back on as, as something that does not continue to this day. Yeah. And I'm just really proud to, I remember, sorry, I'll keep this just, but I remember the stories about Sarah Michelle Gellar at the time. I remember reading about what a diva she was on set and all of these things that I just knew they weren't true. I didn't yeah. actually know. I knew in my heart. And I set out with this book to find out, you know, the truth in the hope that, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky that my, 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 my theory came to be correct. But right. yeah. I, yeah, I wanted to set the record straight sort of about who she is. And I feel like there's ways in which being a powerful woman, the first name on a call sheet on a show like this, um, if it were a man, she would have received a lot more respect for being the boss. And because she was a woman, the perception became she's a bitch. And right. I felt like that deserved to be unpacked. Yeah. That's really interesting about the call sheets. This call sheets about how Alison Hennigan was second on the call sheet, but Nicholas Brendan was second in the credits of that show. That is very interesting. Yes, that is, <laughs> that is interesting. Um, There's a lot of interesting things about the credits on this show. Um, yeah. Some of which are explored in the book, but yes. Uh, yeah. Who gets what credit and when? And then this is kind of this, a related question, but, you know, kind of the, the, the theme of like, don't meet your heroes, right? Where it's mm -hmm. kind of like you're afraid. But, you know, to take a deep dive into, into the thing, the show, I mean, I'm guessing it was your favorite show for a long time. Um, to take a deep dive into something that you love so much is, is, you know, you're bound to dredge up some like inconvenient truths about something that you once romanticized, right? And so whether it was like the, the um, tarnished reputation of Joss Whedon or something else, you know, I just wanted to see if there's anything else you discovered in your research that made you look at the show or Hollywood in like a different way. This, I mean, this is a really fascinating cast. To compare it to like a Dawson's Creek, where mm -hmm. all four of them have gone on to gr tremendous success within the industry after the fact and, all, and are all big stars, this cast sort of is a little all over the place. As I mentioned, like Allison Hannigan is probably better known now for mm -hmm. How I Met Your Mother. Nicholas Brendan has barely done any acting work since and been arrested, I think, seven times now. I mean, I had to go back and um, update a draft of the book at one point because he was arrested during the writing of this book once again. So it's been a different path for everyone involved in this show. And I don't think that there's, you know, you look at something like, and just like that, where, you know, the three women were more than happy to come back together and relive this experience. I don't think even had the Joss have not come forward, I don't think this is a cast that would be super keen to do this show all over again. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been interesting just sort of understanding what, what one does with a legacy that you're on the one hand quite proud of because of the impact of this show and, and that it's had on so many, but also was maybe 
not a great time in your, in your life professionally or otherwise, or maybe because it was not great professionally, it, you know, seeped into your everyday life. So I think honestly, it's like, I've just come to understand, and this is bigger than just Buffy, but it's like, there's what you see in life. And then there's like the real. I feel like I always go into any of these scenarios now. My mom sometimes will be like, did you, li- did you like so-and-so? And I'll be right. like, I'll say to my mom, no, I like the version of them that they presented to me because I just never, fe- I never feel or expect realness. That's not something I think that you're owed when talking to a public figure. And I think that this cast and the show for a long time has dealt with having to hold on to this veneer mm. of the legacy of this show. And I think it wasn't really until Charisma came forward that people have felt more freedom to be able to say, I love this show and I didn't like working on it. I think that's my takeaway from this. But I, again, although I think there are a lot of things that are unique to the set of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think that there are a lot of things that aren't. Well, speaking of the cast, like you've cultivated some, like the, the interviews that you did for this book, I know you lost some, but it's the the roster is pretty insane, right? Sarah Michelle Gellar, Chris Carpenter, Emma Caulfield, Mark Lucas, Amber Benson, James Marster, Anthony Stewart. Have. So, which one was maybe your favorite, or which one maybe like surprised you the most? Hmm. Uh, well, the one that surprised. Oh, uh, two. Okay, so two that surprised me the most would be Seth Green because mm. uh, he was just so funny and so nice and he was really candid and had really clear memories because he was on the show for he was on the uh, he was uh, recurring in season two and then full-time for season three and then in the first third of season four so it's like a really specific block in his memory so he had like really clear uh he could recall like specific events with great clarity whereas some of the other actors it's like was that year one was that year seven um and my sense was that like seth green had the most fun on buffy out of anyone that i talked to that is like without a doubt clear and also seth green's just like really awesome um so i liked that and then mark lucas i would say was the most fascinating because I had to really chase him. He did not want to do it. He does not do a lot with Buffy, which I encourage you to read the book to find out why, because there was a there there. But Mark Lucas like was really kind of treated like shit by both the fandom and then like the legacy of the show. For instance, during the 20th anniversary that Entertainment Weekly did, Mark Lucas was not invited. But Mark Lucas is one of 12 cast members on the show. And Mark Lucas appeared on three seasons, two of which he was a series regular. But there were people at that reunion that were on the show far less than him. This to say that, like, I really enjoyed getting to, getting the opportunity to chat with him and then getting to know him and like really feel like I mm-hmm. like Mark Lucas as a person. Again, going back to my previous comment, I like the version of Mark Lucas that he <laughs> presented to me during that interview, but I really came away from it feeling like Mark Lucas got dealt a bad hand with this show and took it in a way. Like didn't, it wasn't, isn't sour about it. And so mm-hmm. I just really respect him for recognizing the, the hand he was dealt and not having like I feel like he could be a lot more disillusioned with the show which I think he was for a long time but like I was grateful to have gotten that interview and I tried to encourage him to post more on social media but he is not interested (laughs) damn it I was listening to your interview with Chris McCarpenter and in that one you said that 
um, but you weren't allowed to watch Buffy, at least in maybe in the beginning. And so that's just kind of cool and, and interesting. And um, I was just curious why, you know, I wonder if that had any kind of um, like enticed you more to like it because it was kind of like a forbidden it definitely did, but what's funny is, like, I think that the reason my mom didn't want me to watch it was because of, like, the vampire element, when really I feel like, for me, I would, I think the thematic elements of, like, the, you right. know, there's a lot of other things I think are, I could understand why one would be, like, weary of, you know, a preteen watching the show. But yeah, I mean, I had to watch it in secrecy for a long time, which made it, like, my guilty pleasure, and I'm much more drawn to something that is, you know, less of the the mainstream thing and so yes i think that for me i was so used to watching tgif and the things that i just thought everyone else my age my age was watching and no one else was watching buffy that i knew of at the time i mean once i once the i got a little older it became a little bit more popular but yeah i think that there was a combination of mom not allowing me to watch it and feeling like i was rebellious and then also just being like going into school and being like you know, people would be like, oh, I watched, you know, Rugrats last night. And I was like, I watched Buffy say four demons, three with a crossbow and one with a stake. You know what I mean? Right. Like I, I just had more to offer, I felt like, to the conversation. For sure. <laughs> and, you know, what, because in that same interview with her, you were talking about um, how you were bullied as a kid and how Buffy was really this kind of, you know, beacon of... Um, like hope and protection and gave you so much self-belief and self-confidence. And so I'm just curious what the, if there was, you know, a catharsis in writing this book and kind of like recalling, because I know that there is, I know you said it's not a memoir, but there are personal elements to this book. Was it cathartic? No, but I, but, but a great question. No, in that I feel like that, so it's funny, this is like bigger than Buffy, but I feel like I, and maybe this is me, maybe people can relate to this. I don't think, I'll say think, cause you never really know. I don't think I hold on to a lot of that stuff from middle school and high school. I think that I had a mindset pretty early that although I was being bullied and at times tormented, I don't think, I, I, I think I always had a sense of the world being bigger and that, and don't get me wrong, I, I, I certainly cried and, and it had an impact on me at that age, but I just don't think that I, the one memory I carry with me is like, I was chased home one time by these boys. And I remember that feeling because I remember the physical fear of it, like of being chased. And also right. it's so sad, but I was being chased on like a, 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 a road that is like a very populated road. And it's just like, no, one's no one was like, would help me. But I also like, they didn't know I needed help. Cause it might've just looked like we were just like playing around. So like, I don't know, but I do remember that being like, telling you that like this stuff can happen in the light like right it doesn't just yeah. happen in the shadows yeah. so yes that's certainly something i think about from time to time but as far as like the i've let go of a lot of that stuff and also like i could be a bully at times and be very very mean the my sort of like teflon for a lot of these situations was not to retreat but rather to attack which is something i'm not proud of so I think that, I don't think the book was cathartic in that sense. I would say therapy has been cathartic Good. in that sense through the years. But I would say if anything, the fun thing about the book for me was, in, in, you, you know, 
through the lens of catharsism was just being able to be in conversation with the people that made the thing that I love. Right. And going back to like, you know, something we said before, but like, okay, like I'm interviewing people about Buffy. They've been asked every fucking question. How can I find new avenues in, especially with Sarah who like, she's been asked all the questions. And yet I feel like I made some headway, but like there were times it was like, I have to ask you the question because I need the quote for my book. And so, yeah, but like, I think the catharsis was getting to like, look at the person in the eye who, who made the thing I love and be like, what, what, you know, what were you thinking in this moment or that? Mm-hmm. But that said, these are memories from 20, 25 years ago. So I don't think, again, like I, it, it would be interesting to do this same book with something that was like fresh off of the, fresh in people's minds. Right. Uh, Cause I think in addition to it being 20, 25 years, I think a lot of people consciously got rid of a lot of these memories there's a quote in the book that's actually from the Tina Turner HBO documentary that like really stuck with me. And it's the, it's the man that interviewed Tina Turner for People Magazine that first revealed the story about the abuse that she was suffering at the hands of Ike Turner. And in the HBO documentary, he says, I think she told it to me that day because she wanted to get it out of her. Hmm. And I felt that way at times with some of these interviews where it was just like, I think people told me things to get rid of them. Huh, that's actually really interesting. Buffy is has become a gay icon, of course. And so I just wanted to, why do you think that is? And, you know, and then I guess just kind of speak to the larger legacy of how the show has remained such a staple, even today. Well, I mean, it's gay for like the obvious reasons in that like it has multiple LGBTQ plus characters. You've got mm. Willow, you've got Tara, you've got um, Andrew who is either... <laughs> you know, we get into that in the book, but he, he is, he comes, he's gay in the comic books and blah, blah, blah. And then you have Willow's second girlfriend, Kennedy. So you have lots of LGBTQ plus characters. Yeah. Then you have like the innate queerness of a character like Buffy, who is sort of like this outsider who has right. this secret identity, who has to come out to her mother as the slayer. Right. Um. So that was certainly queer. And then also it's just like, she was a badass who who went to school during the day and then didn't change her clothes at all and went and like fought demons and so i think I, and, and i get into this in the book but i think there's something about the fact that like she didn't have like a uniform for slaying unlike catwoman or wonder woman or you know the superheroes that preceded her she was just herself always, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the quips that she was quipping with her friends were the same ones that she was, you know, the same puns that she was doing with, you know, the demon she was about to kill. Right. I just felt like the lack of code switching um, was something that was really resonant, especially mm-hmm. as someone who, as a gay guy growing up had to do a lot of code switching. I think that there was something admirable about like Buffy never having to, um, never having to like withhold any part of who she was outside of like her slayer identity, but like that didn't change sort of like the way she interacted with the world. So I think there's like a lot of uh, queerness that's like overt and, you know. um, That's really interesting. And then also I think that there are ways in which the show is queer that are unintended that like are just, uh, that, took on a queerness. Like for instance, the coming out to her mother, I don't think that was like written as like a queer mm. uh, p- 
parable of any kind, or, but like, but it, it is. But like, I don't think that was the intention of like, let's frame this in a way so it's like a gay person coming out. Um, yeah. So I just think it's so queer. That's so cool. Um, okay, just a couple, because I don't want to keep you here all day, but just a couple of fun questions. Um, rank your, the seasons from your favorite to least. Okay, so my favorite is season three, and then two, and then five, and then three, wait, three, three, two, five, four, one, six, seven. Evan, that is my exact order too. That's so funny. Sure. <laughs> I, I talk about this in the book, but like seasons five, or excuse me, season six and seven are not for me. No, they're not for me either. Um, do you have like a favorite episode or? Okay. I do, I do, I do. Um, my favorite episode is uh, season four, episode 16, Who Are You? When Buffy and Faith switch bodies. Oh yes, of course. Faith is my favorite character. Oh. So getting her back was uh, such a treat. And then also I just think it's like, I just think Sarah Michelle Gellar is at like her, I mean, just next level. I love the concept of that episode. And I love that they do her saying, um, because, it's wrong. because it's not right. Yeah. Um, they build, I mean, you, I guess if you're listening to this, you should check it out, but it's just such a good episode. I think it's just really structurally sound. And I think that it, it, it like, I love the idea that like Faith is inherently good and she has badness in her and that like it's not one or the other and so i just i love the character of faith and i think sarah michelle geller and eliza dushku have such phenomenal chemistry what's your favorite sarah michelle geller movie and performance if it's not the same um well one of my favorite sarah michelle geller performances would be in the movie suburban girl which i love that movie not available anywhere but i love it it's actually a really great movie um right. And I also love her performance in Simply Irresistible because I think that's just a great film, although she hates it. My favorite Sarah Michelle Gellar movie? Um, I'm gonna go with I Know What You Did Last Summer. I just, I think it's such a great movie. I think it's original in its genre at the time. And then I also think that the uh, amount that they give her to do, I think Helen is like a really, oh, actually, yeah, all of the characters, but particularly Helen, um, every time you watch it, I'm just like, God, if she could just, get out of that fucking alley. Oh, um, yeah. I wanted to survive. And, I, and I, I wish that the sequel was Brandy and Sarah Michelle Gellar instead of J-Love. Oh, interesting. No disrespect to J-Love. She is- No. She's an actress. Is there, some, is there anything of hers you haven't seen? No. I was thinking, no. This is just kind of not Buffy related at all, but what do you want to happen in season two of And Just Like That? Because huh. I know that you um, are very into it. So I would love for Carrie to assume more of her season one self, which is to say I would love Carrie to go out more and have casual sex and have boyfriends that last an episode. I would love to see some of the former flames. There's this guy, Jared, from season one, the one who used to film the models fucking yeah. um, that I would love to see back. Also, there was the guy in season two that she tried to be friends with benefits. She tried to turn oh, the yeah. benefits into a relationship. And that didn't work. I'd love to see him back. I've mentioned before, but I'd love to see John, John Slattery's character back. So I'd love to see some of the former guys come back. From Miranda, I'd love to ditch the Che plot altogether. And I would like to see Miranda 
get back with Steve and open up her relationship in a way so that it can, you know, satisfy her sexual needs and continue to explore her queerness. And then I would love, I would need to get a writer's room together and table some thoughts on Charlotte because I don't have them off the top of my head. But I am eager for the confirmation of a season two. And then I just want to know like your dream interview subject if you haven't already interviewed them. I mean, my dream interview subject is Kim Cattrall uh, by <laughs> a long shot. I just feel that, and I would be happy to like remove any conversation about, you know, what went awry with Sex and the City 3 and, and in the subsequent years. I, that's not even why I'm interested in her. I just think that she's so remarkable. I think that she has so many incredible roles. I don't think she's often given her credit, both as an actress, but also her her just like the role of Samantha Jones and like what she brings to it is so dynamic and I love it. And so I would just love the opportunity to talk with her. I think she's very bizarre. I love how private she is, but like she's a little bit kind of logged on, which I like. And I would just value the opportunity to interview someone that uh, I feel like was there for me. It like helped me grow up in so many ways and taught me about orgasms and so many important things. So definitely Kim. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to, for giving me your time. And it was really great to, to meet you and chat about all this fun stuff. And, and your book, Into Every Generation, A Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts, is out March 15th? March 15th. All right, great. Um, Evan, again, thank you so much. I really am a big fan of yours and really admire you. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the interest in chatting with me and I hope I was entertaining. You are, you're great.